Okay, we're going to begin by asking the very important and very prominent question Are there any practicing Kabbalists here in our midst? Besides Harvey, I know, besides. I have to know what I'm dealing with. You know, if you change me into a toad or something, I have to be careful. Then I'll ask the next question Are there any theoretical Kabbalists here? That is, those who study the ideas, the theories of Kabbalah without the hope of changing any part of the spiritual or metaphysical order. They only simply want to study certain doctrines. Are there any theoretical Kabbalists over here? So the answer is probably not. Good. Now I can proceed. As implied by these two questions, there are two types of Kabbalah. Those who are engaged in what we're going to call practical Kabbalah and those who are engaged in what we call theoretical Kabbalah. Studying the theories, the ideas, the theosophy, the philosophy of what Kabbalah is really all about. These two are obviously not the same and Jewish history has seen throughout its history many people who are practical Kabbalists, right, like Barbara, and theoretical Kabbalists, like Eddie. Good. The other way around. Oh, I should have known that, right? Good. We've seen many people who do either or both of these two aspects of the discipline of mysticism or Kabbalah. These students want to know all about Kabbalah without the need. There are other students who what you would call are academicians of Kabbalah, study about Kabbalah, give their entire lives to Kabbalah, but they have no need neither to practice or to become Kabbalists whatsoever. They learn all about it, but never actually engage it. They are what I would call accountants of Kabbalah. What is an accountant? What's true about an accountant? What do accountants do? Those men who have accountants, what do they do? Of? Of? Of business. Of money. money. Your money. You may know all about your money, you may know more about your money than you know about your money. However, can you spend your money? Hopefully not. That's called fraud. You cannot spend your money. Now, why are these people who are, are called the academicians, the scholars, the Gershom Shalom's of Kabbalah, why are they called, or why do they call them accountants of Kabbalah? Because they know all about it, but they're not engaged in it. And why is that important to us? Because there will be those who argue that if you don't actually do Kabbalah, either study its theories and ideas to know and engage them, or to practically do something about it, you only study about it, you'll never really understand Kabbalah. Serious point. If you're not engaged fully as a practical participant of the the study of Kabbalah or the practical aspects of Kabbalah, you'll never really understand it. We here this evening will neither do practical Kabbalah nor theoretical Kabbalah, nor will I even consider us or myself to be a student of Kabbalah. And therefore, many will challenge the conclusions that we make because we are not card-carrying Kabbalists. One has to make the distinction between all of these three types of people, all of whom which study, all of which some practice. Practical, theoretical, and those academicians or those who study Kabbalah, we're none of those. However, if we study one small historical incident, wherein, I'm going to argue, Kabbalah had gone off the appropriate track, 
and committed a horrifying, flagrant mistake by capturing Maimonides, who was one of my closest friends, right? Then we would have, we would have succeeded at least in righting a wrong. Our goal tonight is to try to rescue Maimonides, the Rambam, from the clutches of the capitalists. Our task really is to try to explain what went wrong. How could it be that one of the great rationalists of all of Jewish history, namely the Rambam, Maimonides, how could it be that he was captured by what one may call the non-rationalists, or perhaps, if you will, the irrationalists, who are known as the Mikubalim or the Kabbalists. And yet, it's true, they captured him, they adopted him, they took him over, and it took a mighty effort, and we haven't really fully succeeded yet either, thank you, to regain our Maimonides. The search for an answer to this question, how the Kabbalists succeeded in capturing Maimonides, is going to teach us a lot about Kabbalah and a lot about Maimonides. Truth to tell, my agenda here is really a bit different than that as well. And that is that if one, if one does not study properly and seriously, if one does not make the right distinctions, then one will never achieve the truth. It would be equivalent, let's say, in the 20th century, if, let's say, um, somebody wanted to revision and repaint my man, let's say Rabbi Soloveitchik, who was my teacher, and paint him, let's say, as a right-wing extremist, as a pre-modern personality. That would be not true to the person. And those who are students, admirers of Rabbi Soloveitchik, would have the obligation of rescuing him. How dare one distort the historical record about any great personality, and yet it happens all the time, where there are those who want to adopt a personality and revisionistically say he's one of us when really he would not be one of them whatsoever. So it's a serious issue. Here we are battling with truth and my broader agenda is to make sure that that doesn't happen neither to the rabbi nor to Rabbi but to anybody. It's a criminal act of theft, one would say, if one were to steal a person from his own appropriate moorings and adopt him. And we all understand why that is so. It's interesting that because I once first came across this idea in um, another hero of mine, which may uh, jar you a little bit, with regard to Nietzsche. Nietzsche is one of the great minds of all time, great philosopher. And of course I was very disappointed when I found out that he was stolen from the realm of appropriate philosophy to the Nazi movie, Nazi movement. Hitler adored Nietzsche. And Hitler used Nietzsche's ideas of the Obermensch, of the Superman, of he was beyond all morality in order to support Nazi movement. And nothing could be further from the truth. Nietzsche had a lot of interesting, intriguing, and fantastic ideas. And yet, to be stolen from who he really was, to, to transform him into a Nazi, is a criminal act. And therefore, one has to be careful with what for one studies, to make sure that one understands the parameters of that personality. If one is going to write about science and religion, one has to know religion, and one has to know science. And to do, to do any less than that, to have some awareness of it, and to write about it, is a criminal act.
So I would certainly uh, not support any criminals in this community. But there are. There are criminals, people that falsify that which is inappropriately. Inappropriately do so. So we have to be careful about that. Now, we are going to make the point that the Kabbalists had much room to work with. The mystics, the Kabbalists of the very same generation of the Rambam, such as the Ramban Nachmanides, who obviously was a Kabbalist, his biblical commentary will always say something like, Vamevin Yavin. He who understands will understand. He who knows will know. Or, the Yesh Sod Ba'inyan. There's a secret teaching over here. I want you to be aware of tell everybody. There's a secret teaching over here. And the very fact that there are secret teachings, as you'll see in a few moments, does indicate to a great degree that there's something Kabbalistic ordinarily in this commentary. So Ramban certainly was a Kabbalist. And interestingly enough, of course, he felt a great spiritual kinship with the Rambam, with Maimonides. They may have differed in many areas. For example, how the Rambam viewed Korbanot, how the Ramban viewed Korbanot, sacrifices. Very, very different over here. And yet, the intensity of that difference has to be noted. And yet, despite that, the Ramban felt very comfortable with the Rambam. Though differing in many different ways and areas, still they shared, at least from the point of view of the Ramban, a similar universe of ideas. And the Mukubalim, welcome, good to see you, of the generation after the Rambam, considered him to be an outright Kabbalist. One of the great Kabbalists of the first generation of Kabbalists, namely Abraham Abu Lafia, used the Rambam system of thought as his starting point for his Kabbalistic system. Evidently he saw the Rambam as a Kabbalist. I could take your ideas, your book of perplexed, your one in the Bukhid, and build on it. Take this great rational edifice and build a Kabbalistic system upon Murayn al-Bukhid. In fact, Abu Lafia wrote a mystical commentary on Murayn al-Bukhid. This is fascinating. It's taking that which is what one may say, a square, and making it into a circle. Thank you. Circle, right? From a square, Joey, to a square, square, to a circle. Astounding that that can happen. It shouldn't be done. It could not be done. Yet Abraham Abulafia, in fact, engaged and did it through the wonderful exercise that we call all the time. Anybody know? What's my favorite word? That's not an idea. That's not an idea. I want a word. <laughs> Exegesis? Almost. Eisegesis? Yes, very good. It's not exegesis, you've got to say. These are two critically important words that every literate Jew has to know. Exegesis means when I take a verse and I interpret it, what the verse really says. What comes out, exit, what comes out of the text. Eisegesis <clears throat> means when I have my idea and I pour it into the text. I am putting my idea into the text. Whatever this text says, I don't care. I want that text to read the, what I want it to read. Now, of course, any good rabbi does this every single Shabbat. We eisegize. They're going to tell you that. I tell my, my, my shul when I'm eisegizing and they have a right to walk out of the shul that I am now in the of eisegesis 
And you should be aware of that. It means my reading of the text. I don't get the point what the text says. I don't get what I want the text says. I'm able to change the text to fit my narrow confines. Whatever I want to teach that particular Shabbat. Give me any concept you want. Any, give me any idea you want. Any, say, say, say a word. Say a word. Immortality. Sorry? Immortality. Immortality. Do you want to bet that I can take any verse you want and make it speak about immortality? Give me a... Okay. <laughs> 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 Thank you. 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 Thank if you know what they're getting, they're not that good. Oh, okay. <laughs> when I do, if I don't want you to know, then I won't let you know. But if I, I choose to be intellectually honest, so therefore I do let you know about it. <clears throat> but no, it is, it is, it's a 2,000 year old process where the rabbis of the Talmud are the same. Rabbis would read in to the biblical text <clears throat> in order to make it say what they wanted to say. Isn't that a preacher? Doesn't dumb preachers do yeah. the same thing, basically? We are preachers. Rabbis are preachers. I want to teach you about an idea that the, the parashah, let's say, does not teach you about, and therefore I have to make a teacher. One example. Torah tells Book of Devarim, What does that mean? You're in battle. Right? And as a Jew in battle, you believe that God accompanies you in the encampment. And therefore you must maintain your standard of holiness. Clear enough. And therefore, Torah demands of you to have with you a little peg by which you take that peg with your weapons of war. What do I do with that peg? When I have to, when one has to, go to the bathroom, to leave the encampment, use the peg to dig a hole, do what you have to do, come back. Why? Because your mahane is kadosh. Right? Torah is that concerned about the battlefield morality. Because if you maintain your dignity as a human being, in the encampment, that you'll treat the enemy also with dignity. You cannot become an animal even in war. Torah is telling of you. You must be a human being, a sentimental king, even when you're in war. Now, that's a very nice, straightforward principle. What do the rabbis say about that pasuk? What are they saying? Your fingers like a yated, like a peg. It should be with you all the time. And what you do is don't put it out as which means your testimony, but put it out oznecha. What does oznecha mean? Your ears. When should, your, when should you put your finger in your ear? Ashanara. exactly. When you hear somebody speaking evil of something, say something bad about somebody. Anything. One thing. I'm not going to listen, you'll see. Doesn't work. So, in any time you hear somebody say that, they take your God gave you Yatedim, these pegs, put them in your ear, and you won't hear Sonara. Now, the rabbis want from here to there, from, from weapons of war, and being holy to Lashonara. From here to there. It's amazing. And that, that's only one of thousands upon thousands of examples where the rabbis are clearly reading into a text. <clears throat> that's the creativity and the brilliance involved in sermonizing and preaching. To be a great sermonizer, I'm not sure I like the word preacher. So I'm not sure why. I must have read something. I think of... <laughs> yeah, I think so. Right. So I'm not happy with preachers, but, but to be a great darshan to move people, to be passionate, and yet to be able to be, to be creative enough to be able to read into a text without them even knowing it is extraordinary. It's a great gift that, that God grants to certain people. So now, 
the Kabbalists that Ben Abraham Abu Lafia was able to turn Moen Bukhim, which is a great rational work, in quotes, into a Kabbalistic work through the means of eisegesis. By taking a word that the Rambam may use and twisting it and turning it and reading into it. Now, interestingly enough, he didn't believe, he didn't think, he didn't know that he's in fact engaged in eisegesis. Rather, he thought... Exegizing, correct. He thought the Ramam was a Mekubal, and when the Ramam uses word X, that really is the same word that I refer to, the same X, and therefore the Ramam is really a Kabbalist. I'll give you examples as we go along. So, <clears throat> the Mekubalim in the first generation after the Rambam considered him to be an outright Kabbalist, as well throughout the next six, seven hundred years to the 18th century the voices are heard from the Kabbalistic camp claiming the Rambam as their own. Our question is, had this happened, how could the Rambam have been captured and claimed by the Kabbalists? At the very same time that the Rambam was claimed by the rationalists as well and declared on a number of occasions to be a heretic. Now that's pretty good. <laughs> if you're able to be accepted by the Kabbalists, the rationalists, and a heretic at the same time, you really made it. The Kabbalists are irrational? Is that no. I put that in word in quotes. They are both irrational, non-rational, and even rational. It depends upon how one defines that term. It's a very comfortable term to use because we have a certain sense as to what, as to what it really means. Logical? I'm sorry? Logical, rational? They, they work by their own logic. By their own logic, it's more it's it's non um, non logical in the traditional Western sense, but they do have their own ra reason, their own rationale, their own logical system. It's too facile to use that term, but it's a comfortable and useful term to use. The Rambam is not really fully irrational either, in the Enlightenment sense, certainly not. The Rambam was what one might call a Neoplatonic Aristotelian, whatever that means. Yeah, I don't know what that means either. So I don't want to get into that. Whatever that means. But nevertheless, what happens over here is the Rambam is truly viewed as a Kabbalist by the Kabbalists and a rationalist by the rationalists. And, some, and sometimes what happens over here is that through Exodus or Isegesis, the flask of the Rambam is colored by whatever color you want to pour into, into that flask. And it's true also Rabbi Salvechik. It's an amazing parallel. Of course, Rabbi Salvechik loved the Rambam. The Rambam was his closest friend. He tells you that himself. And he grew up with the Rambam, spoke to the Rambam, everything with the Rambam. And yet, the same thing happened to the Rabbi Salvechik. Great men are captured by other people. And there's a need to correct those errors. The right one takes Rabbi Salvechik. The left one takes Rabbi Salvechik. The middle, like me, takes Rabbi Salvechik. We all adopt him as our own. We need to. And yet we all believe that he's, that he's, not, he's not right, that he's really middle. But the right one tells you that he's really right wing. And so to the left and so to everybody else. Yes, sorry. Alright, it's hard to accept that for 500 years, mm -hmm. people would confuse the Haram Bam. Not confused. As a They're not confused. The Kabbalists said he's a Kabbalist. They weren't confused. The quote of music. The writing is so straightforward. I mean, it might be the result of the English interpretation today. Oh, no, no, no. So oh, no, no, no. He's not, no, he's not that rational either. Is that right? He's, no, he's a perfect blend. Yeah, yes, he really is a great man. We're going to get to your point in a second. We're going to see that. No, 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 no. No. What happens is that um, 
there are certain words, we'll see. Don't go, are you leaving? Okay, so you'll see. So now, does anybody have any suggestions how this very strange, good point, it's a strange phenomenon, how did this very strange phenomenon take place? How could it be? Thank you. Yeah. This writing is, it leaves it open for that. It's not, it's not so cut and dry. Like it's very easy to interpret his writing. In Through exegesis or eisegesis? Um, you can't lose. I mean, I'll lose what he's saying. Correct, sir. Okay, now do we agree with that statement? Do we agree that Rambam's writing is so open that you could really exegize any way you want? How much of the Rambam have you read? Okay. No, I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm saying, well, there, we have two opinions on the floor. One says that the Rambam is clearly a rationalist. Right? And you say that he's open to different interpretations. Truth of the matter is, <clears throat> that legitimate point, that a lot of writings can be read differently. There are all kinds of theories of how to read. And really, whenever I read anything, of course I am interpreting. One cannot escape the phenomenon of interpretation. I might say, I love you, to my wife, let's say. And she may interpret that as, what did you do wrong today? <laughs> Not my wife, she'd never do that. But even a gesture, if I bring her a gift, she may say, oh, how wonderful, how beautiful, how fantastic. Or she may say, the opposite. Every act, every gesture, every word that one utters is open to interpretation. The question is, how do you get to what we call the pshat, what the reader or speaker actually intended. So if I write something, whatever I may write, right, whatever it may be, you may get a completely different idea of what I have in mind. Does anybody doubt that after we finish over here in about another 45 minutes, that you're going to walk away with what, there's 40 people here in the room, 50 people in the room, that each person have a different idea as to what I said? You're going to interpret my words differently. Some of you are going to say that I'm a rationalist. Some of you are going to say I'm a Kabbalist. Some of you say that I'm neither. Some of you are not going to go through even here tonight. You're all going to interpret everything differently. That's the nature of the human being. Now, is the Rambam, who was a very careful writer, exquisitely careful, one can say, is the Rambam so open or not? We'll see that in a minute. Yeah, David. When you're talking about the divide that is reflexed, even in the introduction, the Rambam introduces an element of ambiguity you are challenged to decipher. So the work itself um, is, is um, the contradictions. The idea of the contradictions. Is that ambiguous? It's very clear. It tells you I'm going to go to self-contradict. That's very clear. Okay, so when, so when there appears to be a self-contradiction, aren't you left with more than one choice Mm -hmm. Good. To resolve that contradiction. Okay, good. So therefore, you could come up with different exegetical interpretations. interpretations. Right. Okay, good. David's right. Problem is introduction says, I have to engage in contradictions. Why would an author engage in contradictions? Why would you write something that's contradictory? Because what? It's reality. He, he doesn't want to react. No, he doesn't want that. He doesn't, not, he doesn't think it's reality in his areas. Nor does he think why. He wants to hide the truth. Why would you want to hide the truth? 
either trouble or what else why would you hide truth he doesn't want, want anybody to know except for the elite perhaps the elite people can find the truth by knowing how to solve the contradictions we'll get to this later on but the average person will only take the easier way out if you read the book oh here's the answer Rambam believed ABC and you walk away happily so and you won't know the truth and you'll be better off for not knowing the truth a brilliant author in the Rambam's introduction will say that I'm going to give you a silver filigreed let's say item the core is going to be gold the core, the inner core when look from afar what you see only fil- silver filigree it'll be tempting, you'll see it, you'll love it, it'll be fantastic and you won't even know there's a core of gold to be found you'll be happy seeing it from afar you'll be wonderfully excited about having that but you never will go the next step unless you get really up close and really try to solve Moreno Bukhim's riddles will you ever know about the gold or the light at the end of the tunnel and it's last, last night somebody called and said Rabbi I want to study Moreno Bukhim I already learned it 30 years ago and I really got to the book I said you think you got through the book? They had a wonderful teacher to him. And I laughed. Nobody easily gets through Moreh Nebuchim. If you read it five times, and if you then know the secret of interpretation, maybe you know what he's talking about. No average businessman, layman, knows Moreh Nebuchim. No rabbi, very few rabbis know Moreh Nebuchim. It is so complex of a work, where he does contradict himself, and, does that, and yet he does tell you, I'm going to give you the keys to the interpretation, however, you're not going to use it anyway. He meant it to be a closed book, except for the elite. For those people who are truly perplexed, who truly understand philosophy, who truly see contradictions and problems, biblical, Talmudic, whatever it may be, and only if you really pursue it, if you really try to find the truth, will you find the truth. So we have to try to figure out how it happened that the Rambam's work was so misunderstood. Right? That's what we want to try to find out. Right? Misinterpreted. Both. Misunderstood and misinterpreted. Both. Actually, it's both. Okay, now, in order to do so, what we have to do is to think about what is Kabbalah all about? If I had to encapsulate in two words what Kabbalah is all about, or two concepts and four words, what would I say? Kabbalah is about... No, but yes, but no. <laughs> I am a Kabbalist, see? Yes, but no. No. Good. Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkava. What does that mean? Maaseh Bereshit means creation. Maaseh Merkava means the divine throne. Maaseh Bereshit, creation, is based on Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 2. And Maaseh Merkava is based on Yehezkel chapters 1 and 11. Divine throne and Maaseh Bereshit. In other words, the campus is concerned about how the world came to be and what's the nature of God. The Divine Throne, the first chapter of Yechezkel, 
is about God and about a vision that the prophet Yechezkel in the year 593 before the common era sees. He sees God. If you, if you open up the first chapter, you should read it in the translation of Moshe Greenberg's translation of it. It's the best and will give you some ideas to what he's talking about. And there he says, he sees God. What's that all about? So the Kabbalist is really concerned about those two areas. And yet the Kabbalist is very concerned about everybody, anybody knowing these ideas. Why? Why should the Kabbalist be upset if everybody here opened up a book of Kabbalah, let's say, and started studying this, and they would enjoy these great revelations? What would happen to those people? Why would the, why would the Kabbalists not want you to do that? Why do the Kabbalists cover their ideas and their thoughts, as the Rambam did, with layers upon layers upon layers? of other material. Why would they do that? To protect from misinterpretation. misinterpretation. Okay. okay, good. To protect from misinterpretation, from misuse, what else? Misunderstood. Misunderstood. Okay, all good. Because in order to say the Kabbalah, you have to have a certain kind of a mind, certain maturity. Don't say till you're 40 years old. Put all kinds of barriers in front of you. But much more significantly, perhaps, one might say, is they want to protect the adherent. They want to protect he who was going to study Kabbalah. Now, you're going to raise the question, what could be the problem? I'll open a book. I'm going to open a book. I'm going to read about Kabbalah. What could happen terrible to me? What, what would be a, a downside? Good. I could lose my faith. Astounding so you could study Kabbalah, you lose your faith in God. Or ultimately, what else could happen to you? You could eat the Wait, 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 crucified. What do you mean by that? You could be crucified. Yes. There were Christian Kabbalists, by the way. <laughs> I don't, I thought you were referring no, to them. No, no, I'm not referring okay, to them. Okay, there were Christian yeah, Kabbalists. They thought that Jesus was the Kabbalist. Which Jesus? Thanks. Did you deserve that? Did you deserve that? He's waiting for that. He's waiting for that. He's waiting for that. Pre-planned that board. Pretty well. There, there happens to have been a, a lot of interesting points that we're not going to go right now. The question is, how did Yeshu do his miracles? Shem Meforash, the divine name. Names are a important Kabbalistic item. We're not going to go into that right now. But okay, so the Kabbalists would hide their teachings, as the Rambam hid his teachings. The Kabbalists were afraid of misuse, misunderstanding. Yes but also to protect the adherent because of loses faith. Yes, may deepen his faith, absolutely, but to take that risk. What else may happen negatively to a Kabbalist? Sorry? You what? You could lose your mind, correct? Lose your mind. And the disrespect of the people if he didn't appear properly. Okay, you could lose touch with people, lose touch with people, with humanity. What else could possibly happen? He can misuse his knowledge. Misuse the knowledge, as we might say, quote unquote, maybe misuse his knowledge. Correct? Confused, very confused. Confused, good. Is that clear to us? Could you blow your mind? Did anybody here ever study anything which blew their mind? No? Yeah? yeah? Who did? Besides David. <laughs> I knew that was going to be coming. <laughs> Tell me what blew your mind. This is going to be interesting. I pay, if anything else, you should take this home with you. He hasn't recovered yet. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice that too? <laughs> yeah, I get it. When you study uh, quantum mechanics, a lot, of, Good. a lot of the esoteric 
theories are quite mind-boggling. Good. You can't, the problem is that you just can't conceive of them. You can't conceptualize them. And it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. For something to be so illogical, irrational, to be both be A and non-A at the same time. A concrete example, you gave a lecture several weeks ago where you said the universe is 13 billion years old. No, I didn't say that. Well, you said it might have Right. Can we turn up the tape? Now? Yeah. <laughs> and I went home and I thought about that. Even better is that I find to say that the Milky Way galaxy is a hundred thousand light years, which is a hundred thousand times five point nine trillion miles, and it's that big. Or that this universe, our solar system, is traveling thirteen million miles every single day, and in two hundred million years, it will s- circumvent our galaxy. Or to say that let's say a um, I just read this a quasar or string theory right or a quasar is traveling 29,645 miles per second 29,645 miles per second that's the next fastest second the speed of light that's second that's mind boggling that scrambles your brain so the Kabbalists were concerned about losing your mind losing your faith losing your what? Focus? Focus. Mind. Soul. Soul. Losing your soul. In other words, dying. He, thank you, he who engages may lose his life as well. You lose your faith if you believe in all this Kabbalah and you end up seeing it as so absurd. There's nothing here for me. I can't be part of this world and I walk away from all of it. One might say. Interesting. Maybe as a very poor example, let's say I have, I go to seminars. I go to a lot of seminars, Shabbat Tonim seminars, did so for the last 30 years of my life, right? And a lot of kids that you find there have no religious background, especially public school kids, not serious, but public school kids, whatever it may be, and you try to explain them the halakhic system, where every detail is of monumental significance. How you tie your shoelace in the morning is discussed in Shulchan Aruch. Shoelaces. Everything you do. From your tying of shoelace to the most intimate detail of your sex life is halakhically guided. Now, interestingly, some people will absorb that teaching, see it as a beautiful structure of a way of living life, and they'll be right in with you. Other kids have told me, what are you, crazy? That's absurd. You mean to tell me that even what happens in the bedroom is what you're going to tell me halakha tells me? I say, yeah, absolutely. If I reveal fully all the details of halakha. And I go beyond that as well. Some people see it as so absurd, they lose their contact with the system. They can't deal with that. Other people revel in it. They're glorious. It's wonderful. Structure. Discipline. To the extent where we will be disciplined even when it's maybe non-rational or maybe even irrational. And yet we do it anyway because it just works for us in terms of life. So those who rebel against the ideas of the halakhic system have to be taken very slowly through the halakhic system. Then grow with the halakhic system and then maybe have a shot down the road. Other kids eat up right away. So too with Kabbalah. Kabbalah dealing with creation creation and the divine essence and what God is really all about the divine throne Yechazkiel chapter 1 and 11 
are concerned with revealing this to the mass audience they're afraid of what it may do to that person therefore Kabbalah's teachings are secret they're part of Sitrei Torah, the secrets of the Torah itself and they're not shared with all did last week Professor Pharaoh speak about No. to show this one of the primary quote-unquote Kabbalistic statements in Talmudic literature is the Gemara Masechet Hagigah and there, they, in the second chapter, they are talking about teachings that should not be revealed to all. Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkavah. We shouldn't reveal these teachings to all. Maaseh Bereshit, which is less perhaps profound, less enigmatic than the essence of God, can be taught to a student one-on-one. The other teaching, one-on-one, only through hints. And then later on, in Aptik Gemara, it tells us about a narrative of four of the greatest rabbis who entered into the theosophical world called Pardes or Paradise. Their minds went into this beautiful garden. If you want to read a wonderful book, a great book on Kabbalah, which describes what happened to them, which is a, I would say, a um, kind of a historical reconstruction. It's called Four Entered Paradise by Howard Schwartz. Howard Schwartz is a professor of English, of English someplace in the Midwest, and he took this narrative and he recreated, the colonel is Jewish, the colonel is Talmudic. He read all the rest to be read about this chapter, but he, it's not true to the sources, he recreates the conversations. So it's like historical fiction. So you're not getting exactly what the Talmud says about it, but you're getting a good rendition, but it's developed, so to speak. So maybe you should read it. <laughs> you're not really getting exactly what you want to get, but on the other hand, it gives you. I loved it. I thought it was a very, very nice book. What about as a journal leaf? Is that somewhat simple? historical fiction? It's a great book. It's a book that I recommend. One has to be aware enough to know what's historical and what's fiction about it. As a driven leaf. Also, it's a, it's a wonderful book to read. Not about Kabbalah. It's about the four rabbis. Speaks about the four hours, but that's specifically about Kabbalah at all. It's about that period of time of of, of the um, revolt. But it does mention the issue. But yes, now either one of these, but this second one is, is more Kabbalistic than the first one. That's not really Kabbalistic. What happens? Also, these four rabbis enter to this paradisical world, the world of paradise, and the four rabbis. Ben Azai lost his life. What does that mean? He went to the other side of the curtain that separates the physical from the supernatural, from the metaphysical. What does it mean he lost his life? It just means his soul chose to remain on that side rather than return to the plebeian physical world. So we use the term, he died. What really happened over here? He lived eternally. No, he lived eternally on that side of the Pargon. He liked what was there. He stayed there. Don't we all live eternally in that respect? Yeah, but he want, once he tasted it, he didn't want to come back to this world. This world is, is a negative... Nobody does. Sorry? Nobody comes back to we know. <laughs> yeah, but right now you're physical. Right now, if he were here right now, he'd be spiritual. But we had more years to live than Azai. But he chose to remain on that side of the Pargon, that side of the curtain. You see? Parts of it are metaphorical and parts of it are literal. The fact that the four rabbis entered into this world of theosophical speculation and that Ben Azai chose to remain on that other side of the curtain is to be taken 
literally, he, he entered into the world, which means that he thought theosophical thoughts, and he died. From our point of view, he died. From this point of view, he lived eternally in that state, spiritual state. Ben Zoma lost his mind. And Bereshit makes the point that when he came back, so to speak, metaphorically, to this world, I think it was Rabbi Yohanan, but I'm not sure, asked him, where are you? And he says to him, don't you know, between the upper heavens and the lower earth, there's only a zed, only three inches. This is zed. Heaven crashing with earth is what he perceived. The rabbi then said to the other students, leave him be, he is still there. He is still gone from us. He lost his mind, Ben Zoma. Elisha ben Abuya, famous, as a driven leaf, what happened to him? He became a heretic. He cut himself from the source of the Jewish people, cut the roots. He became a heretic. He became a renegade against the Jewish people. He went to the Romans and he informed upon the Jews. Very sad. So why would have Kabbalah influence people in that? He saw too much, understood too much. He saw it as absurd to, to, to too great of a degree. At the end of the day, he became a heretic. The study of Kabbalah can do that to a person. As we all have seen. And beyond that, Rabbi Akiva, in the famous phrase, only Rabbi Akiva, who is the father of the Mishnaic system, the father, one may say, of Talmudic detail, halakhic detail, he was able, perhaps one may say, to use the details of halakha to anchor him back to reality. And therefore was able to survive this experience. That's an oversimplification of the narrative of the Gemara Chagigah and as a driven leaf or the book by Howard Schwartz will give you more details about it but that expresses very clearly why one should not study Kabbalah although Barbara's right it may deepen your faith as well but we understand why the Kabbalists were fearful and we understand why the Kabbalists warned others from tasting the forbidden fruit of mystical teachings and therefore they hid their teachings. There's a social element, a psychological element, a spiritual element to all of this. Furthermore, Kabbalah demands that each person who is to study this discipline, who wants to understand Kabbalah, must do so with a personal instructor. Why? You must have a master if you want to be a disciple. One cannot be a student of Kabbalah without being a disciple, and thereby that implies that you must have a master. Why? Yeah. yeah they don't misunderstand it. They don't Good. Misinterpret. Good. So you don't lose your mind, lose your life, lose your faith. I'm sure it has a lot to do with the four rabbis and anyone that has, when they start to study Kabbalah, they have to have a certain perspective beforehand mm-hmm. so that they don't. Their mind or their Perspective and a teacher. You must have a teacher. Right. Yeah. I think it's because the system, being so different and so non-rational, that no person could independently derive the parameters of the system by using anything that he learned before. What if he read about it? Let's say you start reading the Zohar or Sefer Abahir or so. It's it's more. It's that. But it's more than that. Well, when, they, when, when this notion of having a personal master was put forth, 
suspect. A Rebbe. For fourth at a time when the availability of print information was not extant. So, therefore, the only way a guy could theoretically do it is to have. Good, I agree. But I, I agree, but I would say it's more than that as well. Either print is there. You still want to study Kabbalah from a master. In order to guide you along the path, that you don't eat too much. You don't taste the sweetness too much. Because you may eat too much and terrible consequences. So the master is the one who tells you how far to go when you're ready for the next step. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They wouldn't have had to say it. If you couldn't learn it without it, they wouldn't have to tell you to not learn it without Without a master. Right. So I think the sense of saying that you need a master is just to control it, because otherwise control, control. If you couldn't learn it without it, well, they, well, they no, like they no, everybody can. Everybody would think they could learn it because they. But they wouldn't be think, able to. No, they think they understand it. That's they what happens by applying, by applying the regular rational world systems. They think that the word translates into this. But it doesn't really, because that's not the full implication of the translation. Right. So both are true. You're both saying, as good capitalists, you're both saying it's true. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry? And just thinking it's like if you're going hiking in the Himalayas, and somebody says, okay, here's a map, go. And you see the map, and you say, okay, I can read the map, and I'll go. But When's the last time you've been in the Himalayas? I don't even know if you've been in the Himalayas. No, okay. the Shanko or whatever. <laughs> and now he comes, and there's an avalanche, or there's a freeze, or there's, and you don't know how to do it on the map. You don't know what's going to happen. Come up in the Even if you have the map. You need the guy. Good. Yes, yeah, fine. Good. Uh, this, uh, do you have a time frame for these four people that you just described? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How could one not have a time frame? When you talk about Rabbi Akiva, you're talking about the third generation of Tanaim. And Rabbi Akiva, of course, died in 135 after the Common Era. So he was around the turn of the common era. 2,000 years ago. Right? Okay, now what else is Kabbalah about? All three of these guys are the same time. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yes. So they all went together? Yes. Alba'ah nechnesu lepardes. The four had entered into Pardes at the same time. Presumably. Harvey, the question really is how does one interpret this... The question is how does one interpret this narrative? It's a narrative. I'm interpreting it simplistically, I would say. Shh, quiet, please. One second. Okay, so I am, I am interpreting it simplistically, and there may be other statements one can make about it, but according to Shutoshim Mikra, it's simple reading of it, is yes. Okay? I'm sorry? Who was the master over Probably Rabbi Akiva. Right, so Probably. The Did they, have their they ate too much. So what it's telling us, but again, I don't want to focus on the story, it's telling us that you can't, once you, you're left, on your own, they you may, overdose. you may, you yeah, overdose. That's what, the Gemara, that's what the Gemara says about it. Let me go on. Now, ma, therefore, Kabbalah talks about Maaseh Bereshit, Maaseh Merkava, essence of God and creation. Kabbalah tells me about secret teachings, not open to the public, it's an elitist system as well. Kabbalah demands that we t- have a teacher-student, master-disciple relationship. As well, Kabbalah talks, talks about union with the divine. We're in in one sense or another, in one level or another, the Kabbalist bonds or merges with the ultimate reality called God. God is the ultimate reality, and the Kabbalah brings one to achieve a kind of unity 
with the ultimate reality called God. Not physically, obviously, but spiritually, certainly, and perhaps psychologically as well. An extreme form of this phenomenon, and I'll qualify to say in a minute, is the Sufi mystics. The Sufis are the Islamic mystics who write extraordinarily beautiful poetry about the experience of bonding with the divine. One has to be moved emotionally to tears when you read their descriptions of what it means to unify oneself with the ultimate reality called God. It's beautiful. It's extraordinary. In one particular case, Al-Halaj, who was an 11th century mystic, emerges from the ecstatic state of mysticism and says, An al-Haq. What does An al-Haq mean? I am the truth. I am God. I'm beyond all. For which he was promptly beheaded by the Khalif because this man is dangerous. Somebody mentioned before that when you engage in this, you become far beyond the normative society. The mystics are not part of your normal, ordinary people. The Sufis as well would say, Anna more Islami, Anna more Yahud, Anna more. Third. Islami, Islami, Yahud, and Islam three. And what are you? Anna Suf. I'm beyond all religion. I'm beyond all people. The intense personalized experience of the unity between the Sufi mystic and the, and the divine is such an extraordinary experience that they saw themselves beyond all social norms all halakhic norms as well now Chavot was very much influenced by the Sufi mystics as was the Ben Abraham Ben Harambam there is much mysticism in both of these two works the question is where it came from. One should also point out that the Sufi mystics themselves had adopted as their models in the 9th century Eliyahu and Elisha of biblical fame. So ultimately, their form of Sufism is Jewish at its roots. Eliyahu and Elisha, the biblical prophets, who did hang out in deserts, who did wear loincloths, who did wear, Suf means wool, as undergarments, all of that, was biblical Jewish in origin. Is that what they Sufi? Sufi means wolf. Wolf, wolf. I know. Yeah, so, Sawafa. So then, yeah. wolf, wolf. But I want to ask you a question. Yeah. You are using the word kabbalah and, and music interchangeably because but, last week we had a lesson that separated correct. them. Correct. Yeah, one should. Only for the purposes of time and, and uh, at this point now. So one should use a... Definite difference between Absolutely. That. Absolutely. I, I prefer the word kabbalist but I don't know if everybody knows what that means, so I use the word mystic, which has some overlap. There is some overlap. The, well, Kabbalists use mysticism. Correct. And mystics are not Kabbalists. Of course not. I mean, because if I'm quoting the Sufi mystics, they're not Kabbalists. No, but... And I can quote Kabbalah Christian mystics begin? as well. Where, where did Kabbalah begin as opposed to mysticism? Let me just finish so we'll come back to that if we can. Okay? Come back to that. Okay, now. So, one can say that the attempt at union with the divine is a feature of Kabbalah. However, 
No Jewish mystic ever describes anything along the lines of what I just described that the Sufis did describe. No Jewish person who studied Kabbalah ever thought that he was unifying himself with the divine at all. That's not a Jewish concept. In, um, in Arabic, it's called wasl. Wasl means to unify with the divine. Now, Rabbein Abraham uses this term all the time. But he does not mean, literally, that one unifies oneself with the divine. What he means, we'll talk about in a few minutes. But the concept is there, but it's not the same understanding. Yes, sorry, Alan? What about Moshe? I mean, he was uh, directly he didn't unify with he communicated with not, did not unify with I'm communicating now with you but we're not a unity right yeah was there a unity I mean obviously the Kabbalists would say so the Kabbalists might say that Moshe Rabbein Sinai wasn't a mystical experience or a Kabbalistic experience so to speak so he, they may say so but we don't ordinarily understand Moshe communicated with God and he wrote, brought down the law Okay, let's go on. Now, we mentioned four areas that one can use as defining Kabbalah. Master-disciple relationship, secrets, divine unity. What does the Rambam say about these four areas? Now, again, our goal is to try to understand, in another 12 minutes, how in fact the Rambam became captured by the Kabbalists. What I've laid out for you, admittedly, simplistically, I oversimplified, but hopefully you have some sense of what I'm talking about. Let's see how the Rambam deals these four areas. Does Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkava play a role in the Rambam's life? The answer is absolutely yes. The Rambam celebrates, as the Kabbalists, these two areas. Maaseh Bereshit, which is creation, Maaseh Merkava, which is the divine throne. The Rambam, in his introduction to Moreh Nebuchim, as well as in part 2, okay, back to this, talks about Sitzvah Torah, the secrets of the Torah itself. The Rambam tells in part 2, chapter 29, and his instruction to part 3, that Maaseh and Maaseh Merkava are the focal points around which all of Moreh Nebuchim revolve. I'm here to explain the secrets of Torah, the Rambam says in Moreh Nebuchim. And one of the two most abstruse, hidden secrets... Is that me? Okay. One of the two most abstruse secrets in all Torah teaching? Maaseh B'Shem So the Rambam does share this with the Kabbalists. Both the notion of secret teachings, when you read Torah, what you see is not what you get. There are layers to Torah study. Hidden secrets embedded in Torah literature, secrets as Kabbalah as well as Now, furthermore, and interesting, in the first 71 chapters of Part 1 of One Nebuchim, the Rambam deals with biblical, biblical terms that are used for God that are inappropriate. The Rambam wants you to have the right knowledge of God, the right understanding of God. He deals with proving God. He deals with God's attributes. And in 161, he speaks about God's names. God's names is a favorite topic of Kabbalah as well. And of course, the Ramah deals with creation, eternal matter, and the possibility of the eternity of the universe. Maaseh Bereshit, Maaseh Merkava. 
and at every turn the Rambam describes these disciplines as Sitre Torah, the secrets of Torah, hidden matters. Harambam tries to conceal these deeper secret teachings even as he reveals them. He tries to conceal them by contradictions. And he will tell you, when he introduces a chapter heading, the only way of understanding what I'm going to say to you is by connecting chapter headings. He may introduce an idea over here and say XYZ, and introduce the same idea 22 chapters later with the same idea, and then say, not XYZ, which is for the masses, but say something else. And you see the contradiction? No, here's the true teaching, there it's not. Or the reverse. Or the reverse. When the Ram says, Know this, pay attention to that. There are subtle hints throughout Moreh Bukhim which tells you what he wants you to know. And only by understanding the contradictions, only by knowing the system by which he resolves the contradictions, which is not fully understood to this very day, the Rambam can want to understand the Rambam. So the Rambam tries to conceal these deeper teachings as did the Kabbalists as well. Are the contradictions false? Wouldn't he be writing false things if they're contradictions and one is true and one isn't? Yeah. He has to hide the truth. It's, the best book on this topic is a book by a guy named Leo Strauss, brilliant mind, who wrote a book, I think it's a great book to read. He wrote a book called Persecution and the Art of Writing. How does one write when one is going to be persecuted for what one writes? If you want to know what I mean is choose a place which is oppressive today in the world. Where's there a, what, I mean, I can't use Russia anymore. That's not oppressive. Where's there oppressive? Iran. 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 Let's say you want to smuggle information into Iran and you want to write a letter there. You have to write in code. So the person writes back to you in code and says the sun is shining or it's raining or it's storming. He's writing in code. And the person, the censor, who gets paid by just reading through letters very quickly doesn't notice it at all. You have to be very careful reader to figure out the code, take 20 years to figure out the code. Mm-hmm. When we had to go to Russia, we had to write in code the addresses of all the people that we had to see. So you have to, you have to, you have to assume what's the intelligence level of the person who's going to look at my letters or my, my address book. Mm-hmm. He has five minutes to look at it, what's he going to... So we just make certain assumptions, we write it in code. Now if I write my code, I write it in Hebrew, what's going to happen to my address book? He can't read it, he will write. Right, he'll take it away, but right. So it's like to look like a very normal address book. And yet has to be my addresses that he will never know. So East 25th Street might be... Well, it might be a street in Russia. I think, you know, the Street, for example. So Emily and I both knew the code that we had. But the person who read the book didn't. So persecution and the art of writing. How does one write when one is persecuted? From a new... He was going to be persecuted by his writings, and if we had to write in code, as did other great thinkers, Plato as well had to write in code. What happened to Spinoza, who didn't write in code? He paid the price. Right. When he was excommunicated, he had to lie by the, by the door front, and everybody in the shul had to walk step on his face, because of what he wrote. You like Spinoza? I don't know. You don't know him? Don't invite him for dinner. Get in trouble. So what happens over here is that one has to be smart to write in code when one writes things that one does not want everybody to know because everybody cannot understand the subtleties of the Rambam's thought.
Now, but, in my mind, I was just thinking that you don't have to answer that with this influence Jewish thinking that, that people absolutely. do things that are Absolutely, correct. right. But it's still silver. Mm-hmm. If you read more Nebuchadnezzar and you, you at least walk away with the silver, you won't walk away with the gold, silver filigree. If you look very carefully and really analyze really well to see the gold was in the silver filigree. That's his, his example of mm-hmm. the, in the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar. So he who studies very closely, it's not a book that you can read casually, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. It's a book that has to be read intensely, carefully, marking up every single page, 12 different colors of ink, to get the whole system together. Right? Okay. So now, so the Rambam in all these areas is very similar to the Kabbalists. Rambam even speaks of a certain kind of union with the divine as the Kabbalists do. So in all these areas, superficially, Rambam seems to be very similar to the Kabbalists. Do, Sorry? Do Kabbalists admit that they're Kabbalists? Some do, some don't. Some do, some don't. Depends upon that. There's a whole slew of Kabbalists running around. This is a wonderful book. Nine F Mystics is a very nice book. Nine F Mystics which is about a little bit, it's about those people who don't always admit to being Kabbalists. Here, for example, teach, it tells us about um, a mystic on East Broadway, where you never would know was a mystic. He'll talk about the accountant. Who's the accountant? I, it wasn't my metaphor before. Who's the accountant of Kabbalah? Gershom Shalom. Right. Gershom Shalom is the accountant of Kabbalah because he uses, knows it more than anybody else, but he can't really... Perform it. Isn't he the guy that wrote the thousand page book on uh, on on Yeah. And he was a Mukubah? No. No, he was. He was an accountant. Okay. He was an accountant. Right. So over here, it's a beautiful book. I lo- I read this book thirty years ago, and I really I really loved it thirty years ago. I don't know about now, but I loved it really thirty years ago. And he talks goes to the whole realm of Kabbalah, Bratzlav, Lubavitch, mysticism for the masses. Very very nice stuff. And in the end, he talks about the half of who's the half. He. Herbert Wiener. He's the half. He's the half. Reform rabbi in West Orange, New Jersey. But seeking the spiritual. Seeking to find God. It's a sincere search. He wants to know, where do I find God? So he tries to, through all of this, and I, again, when I read it 30 years ago, I really, I loved it. I thought it was great. So in any case, yes. So there are Kabbalists who do tell you the Kabbalists and some who don't. Some who not to So you're right. Good. So the Rama speaks even about a certain kind of union with which one can achieve with the divine as well. Good. Now, finally, not only in emphasizing and the master-disciple relationship, and that the Torah contains secret teachings, and not only in emphasizing divine-human union, the Rambam also has a concept called emanation. Emanation is common both to Kabbalah as well as to the Rambam. What does emanation really mean? I wish you wouldn't ask that question. That's a very hard question to really describe. What it really means is God creates the world through an overflow of His own essence, His own self. God is a freely flowing fountain of divine goodness. God's own being ultimately creates the world. Let's leave that alone for now. Emanation is, as the sun emanates its rays, is the way that God created the world according to 
the Kabbalists, and according to the Rambam. With all that I've said so far, it should not be surprising to anybody to see that Kabbalistic thought had found an important ally in Maimonides. But, this but is very critical. A careful analysis of the Rambam shows us that the Kabbalists were mistaken. In all of these areas, the Rambam had a very different set of ideas than the Kabbalists. Very different. Now, we won't go through all the ideas right now, but at least to give you one or two examples that will illustrate the point how the Rambam differed from the Kabbalists, though the Rambam used the same terminology. And that's critical. Because the Rambam used the same terminology, therefore the Kabbalists assumed that what the Rambam had in mind when he described X, and we describe X, then obviously the Rambam was a Kabbalist. But if one studies the Rambam very carefully, one understands the whole corpus of the Rambam's writings, then one sees, of course, that the Rambam had something very different in mind. Now, when the Rambam speaks about Maaseh Bech Maaseh Merkava, creation and divine essence, as Sitzirei Torah, as the Sibyl Torah, what does the Rambam mean by these two terms? It's clear. The Rambam means by Maaseh Bereshit, physics, the physical elements of the world. Maaseh Bereshit is physics. Maaseh Merkava is, quote, the science of things divine, or metaphysics, that which is about God, or the spiritual superstructure of the world. That which is beyond, behind the physical is the spiritual. So the Ram's understanding of Maaseh Merkava is simply physics and metaphysics. Physics is cosmology, metaphysics is God. That's simple. For the Rambam, these two areas are indeed deep, hidden, and profound, but they're not mysteries, and they're certainly not Kabbalistic ideas. One can know much about physics and study metaphysics. One can speak about creation and the nature of God, or at least God's attributes. We can prove God's existence. We can speak about God's emotional, in quotes, qualities. But that's it, Elibo. When God is angry or God is emotional. We can speak about all those issues and what it really means. And when we speak of the names of God, we are speaking of things that the Kabbalists viewed as mysteries, but there's no hint at all in the Rambam's discussion of the names of God as anything mysterious whatsoever. These names of God are simple descriptions of the attributes or actions of God. 161 in So, Therefore, it is possible to take the Rambam, or the Rambam's terms, and see them Kabbalistically, and write a whole Kabbalistic commentary about them, but then you are reading into the Rambam, or eisegizing, and you're not seeing the Rambam as he wanted to be seen, as he tried to express himself. Let me look, take another example of this. What is the nature of evil? What is evil? Is evil real? Yes. Mm-hmm. Good. You're both right. You're a Kabbalist, you're not. <laughs> what does that mean? The Kabbalist viewed the demonic, the evil, as real. Something that really exists. Known in some Kabbalistic writings as Sitra Harina, the other side. 
God creates the world and yet something goes wrong and there's an other side, a demonic side, from which evil draws its power. Put it in Luriana Kabbalah later on, what happens is that God creates the world with a spiritual energy, so to speak, and He creates certain telim utensils by which to house and hold the spiritual energy. And what does the spiritual energy do to these kilim? Bursts them, breaks them. Right? So now they're all over the place. So our job is to gather these kilim, and we say, We try to unify the world once again. At one point it was one harmonious whole, now it's broken apart, we want to unify the world again. So for the Kabbalists, evil is real. For the Rambam, exactly the opposite, evil is not real only in the terms of the Rambam, pervasion of good. The Rambam sees the world as having been perfectly created by the all-powerful omnipotent God. There's a harmony, tranquility, there's a sweetness and gentleness to the creation of the world. Evil only is the pervasion of good. Evil from the Rambam's point of view does not really exist. Question, is darkness real? No, correct. Darkness is only the absence of light. If I just turn on a light, there's no more darkness. Correct? Obviously, for some people, there always is darkness. That's true. But for people that are enlightened, all they need is... Sorry for that, I apologize. All they need is what? Light. Light. So then there's no more darkness. So in the same way for the Rambam, evil does not really exist. It's only the absence of goodness. Provision of good. So, so too with regard to evil. So now, again, in terms of these areas, it's really clear how the Rambam differed with the Kabbalists. Or take, for example, the issue of union. Whereas for the Kabbalists, there was a psychological to minimum, maybe spiritual union with the divine, for the Rambam, no. What kind of union do you make with God? Purely intellectual, cognitive. It's my mind connecting with what's known as the active intellect, which is the last emanation of God, the provider of all ideas. When I have a brainstorm, it means my mind is thinking along the same, with the same purveyor of thought. God is, in the lowest manifestation, so to speak, a purveyor of thought. You have a brainstorm, you've connected, you understand, you have a moment of insight. The Ram used the term, introduction, it's like a lightning bolt. All of a sudden, you got it. We've all had that experience. I got everyone's nodding. We've had that experience. Tonight you're having that experience, hopefully. All of a sudden, the light is shining. Right? Interesting is because the Rambam does use the metaphor of light and of water, which the Kabbalists use as well. So that's, again, where the confusion had come from. So the Rambam's union, or usul in the Arabic, is purely intellectual. It's cognitive. One mind meeting the other mind. It takes place when one thinks. But it's not at all anything similar to what the Kabbalists mean when they speak about divine union. And even also with the notion of emanation. For the Kabbalists, the emanation of God is an emanation of God's being throughout the different levels of existence, ultimately relating and creating the world. But it's God's being that is all over the place. You might call Kabbalah a kind of dynamic pantheism. God is all omnipresent everywhere. The Rambam's understanding of emanation is very different. The Rambam does not have the same concept of sefirot. Sefirot are the 
Sefirot are the the emanations as they're expressed. The Ansof are all connected. The entire tree of the Sefirot are all connected to the Divine. For the Rambam, emanation is not an emanation of God's being, but rather simply a causal description, a manner of speaking of how God relates to the world. Is that sort of clear? How the Kabbalists view emanation as God's being, God's essence is emanated to the world, but for the Rambam, it's only a logical, causal relationship of how God connects or relates to the world. It's not an emanation of godliness. Rambam does not believe in a dynamic kind of pantheism, as the, as the Kabbalists do. For the Rambam, the world is positive, optimistic, tranquil, harmonious, and good. For the Kabbalists, it, the ultimate God is the One, this emanation, and we end up descending to the negative. Physicality is negative because you're not spiritual. And your attempt in life for the capitalist is to rise on the ladder, to ascend the ladder, to ultimately achieve spiritual unification with God again. Clear? A second. The Rambam would not say that at all. For the Rambam, one tries to know and understand God, but it's not an ascent from the negative matter, which is common to almost all Kabbalists, matter is negative, to the more purely spiritual. That ascent is not in the Rambam. For the Rambam, intellectualism means connecting and knowing God. It doesn't do with ascending from the negative to the positive. So, one second, sorry. So, so, What's the difference between when the people wanted to build this tower to go off the... We would have to study, it's a good, it's an interesting idea, one would have to study two issues. One is what is the shot of that biblical narrative, what did they do that was wrong? And many of the rational commentaries will give you different understandings as to what they did that was wrong. Search for fame, immortality, whatever it was. We want to be one nation, challenge God, is the Midrashic interpretation, not the literal, but the Peshat, Midrashic interpretation. So that's one issue. Another issue would be to study, to see whether or not the Kabbalists use that as a metaphor positively or negatively. I don't know. I never studied the Kabbalists that. It's also true with the Yeah, one has to read all, of, it's, it's a good point, because one has to look at all of biblical. I don't want to ascribe to all these things that the people got punished for, big, I mean, major punishment. So why would I even want to go near it? Near the Kabbalah. We would have to, we have to be fair to the Kabbalists and, and fair to the text of the Bible and figure out exactly what is it or how did they view these narratives. And it also seems like the people that are looking for it, have, you look, some people will look at it that they have it as an aspiration to learn more, but to me it seems like they're lacking something because they can't believe in what's available for us. No, they, they, they must ascend the ladder. Physicality is negative. You must ascend towards loving God. Spiritually. And if it's an ascent on the ladder, you're rescuing yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a great effort. The Kabbalists would say no. It's a contradiction of the term. The Kabbalists say the physical is negative. You are, your, your physical self is blocking the spiritual light for you to ascend and to achieve union with God. But they not seeing the gold to the silver as well? They want to go to the gold. The, the, the silver is negative. We want more. It's matter, but we all have a spiritual 
And if the matter is too physical, it's negative, it's, it weighs down. It weighs down. It weighs the spirit down. According to them. According to the Kabbalists. According to Plotinus, according to the Neoplatonists, same. Yeah. That prevents us from experiencing a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Uh, of knowing, of knowing God, of knowing. Knowing God, so that's the exact thing, like the Mikubani. I would never want you to understand the exact thing. Same what is the very careful one's terms? Of the physical preventing the Neshama, the spiritual... From the intellectual, intellectual, yeah. intellectual. Somewhat. The idea that which idea, which idea? the idea of Kabbalah developing and developing and moving on as it went through the centuries, and that he would like to touch it on the beginning of of, of, a, of, a, of a you know thinking, and then it moved along, and it became a little bit more spiritual, a little bit more spiritual. There's a, there's a few points. First of all, Kabbalah, in certain forms, preceded the Rambam by a thousand years. That's number one. Number two, nothing in the Rambam, though he used the same terms and has same similar ideas but at root or when one says the Rambam you understand the Rambam in his own terminology what he really was all about he was not a Kabbalist they thought he was for the reason that you were mentioning but the Rambam who he was what I'm trying to point out over here is that in terms of his idea of evil or divine union same way that divine union Rambam is intellectual and the Kabbalist is spiritual so to speak there's nothing in common with each other so there could be the no, same term there could be no, uh, no development on his thinking it's just starts and ends with what he thinks and that's it? As far as the Rambam himself is concerned. The Kabbalists took the Rambams and they did it though, but that's not the Rambam. That's, that's another school of thought. Let me just, one more minute, one minute. Okay, one second. So now, in the Kabbalistic scheme of things, he who ascends the ladder to, us, to achieve union with God is attempting to find redemption. In the Rambam, the notion of redemption, to spiritually free oneself from the shackles of the body, is not found in the Rambam. So, for the Rambam's point of view, these ideas of divine union, or of emanation, or are all to be understood within the framework of Plotinus, let's call it Aristotle, Neoplatonism, Al-Farabi and his own creative putting together of all these ideas the Rambam would not at all accept or think of himself in any which way as a Mekubah so he, he knew it and he rejected it or he didn't think of it say let him speak one sec did he know of it and he rejected it or did he not develop that's what the it we have to be very careful here. What is the it you're referring to? Thank he you. knew the yeah. Gemara and Hagigal. The thoroughly spiritual aspect of Maasim and Kabbalah. He knew of it and he rejected but, it. He would say what he was doing was a thoroughly spiritual. I don't know. Is he very he careful? aware of that, that system. He let me put it this way. He certainly rejected works such as Shi'ur Koma, which is a 9th century work which describes the physical dimensions of God. He knew of that. Rejected. 
He rejected magical practices. Rejected. He rejected amulets. Rejected. He rejected the notion of language. Language for the Kabbalist has creative power. Listen. Charlie. Language has creative power. God creates the world with language. The, the letters of the alphabet are mystically powerful. Right? For the Rambam, language is conventional. It's what you and I decide to speak about. So all of those areas, the Rambam rejected magic, amulets, language. That's not the Rambam. So the Rambam, therefore, knew a lot of what the 8th and 9th and 10th century thinkers were saying about Kabbalah and rejected all those areas. So I want to be very specific about what one is, what area you're talking about. So in terms of hymns, for example, hymns, Piyutim play a very strong role in the Kabbalists' worldview. The Rambam rejects hymns as a means by which one can approach God. So whether it's hymnology or language or Shur Koma, whatever these words are, Sifrei Yitzira, all these words that the, that the, that the Rambam do not, he rejects all of that. Does the Rambam specifically reject numerology? Yeah, in the sense that the Kabbalists of the 8th, 9th century use it. That, they, that these numbers have a power in of themselves, absolutely. It's all conventional language and conventional use of terms. So he rejects all the voodoo. He doesn't use that word. So that, no, I want to be very careful. I'm trying to be very careful. Yeah, David? Yeah, Daniel? Um, my simple reading, um, don't I get a sense from the Rambam that his approach to God, in the intellectual sense, I understand. He says you can get inside to the palace. You can, he believes you can have a complete intellectual knowledge of God. Is it? Okay, so... One can never have intellectual knowledge. Okay, so doesn't he come Into the across, palace. Doesn't he come across that way that you can almost know and not know 100%? Of course whereas, you can't know 100%. Whereas a mystic would say he could unify with the divine yeah, 100%. But not know. Not 100%? Of course... No. Yeah, no, no, not no, but yes, you know, yeah, in some sense, in some sense, you deal with a very broad movement of a thousand or two thousand years. In some sense, we have to be very careful. Absolutely, point of yes, the mystic goes beyond, but the roundabout also goes beyond the rational as well. So you have to be very careful with the terms that we're using. And again, in an hour and a quarter, I wasn't going to say the whole thing. Okay. Again. No, I the only thing I have to say is you want to talk like similarities on a, on a simplified term. It's like saying that the United States is a democracy and Canada is a democracy. No, I'm not going to say no. that. No, not at all. No. I, you know what it's like? How about the following? Ready for this? Okay, I'll try to say this well. Yeah, I would say that there are no similarities except for terminological and superficial. Number one. In the same way, the Ram uses a category of language called homonyms. Okay. And what homonym is, is um, I use a term, I say a dog. A dog is, has four legs and barks. Anybody have a dog here? Is that an accurate description? Okay. Good. There's also, in the heavens above, a celestial configuration of a dog which is called Sirius. These two are both called dogs. What do they have in common? Nothing. Nothing. Superficial. Exactly. Only superficially are they at all on the same plane. Nothing more than that. When we say, for example, taking this one step further, God is powerful, omnipotent, all-powerful. What am I saying? Nothing. 
Because when, when, when I use the term all powerful, you think of me. <laughs> five miles an hour, I run all night, right? But I'm running now, five miles, right? I'm with shape, I'm powerful. But God's power and omnipotence has nothing in common with my power. If I say God is wise, who do you think of? <laughs> no, I know I guess in that one. He's saying me, he's saying me. Thank you. So you said, I knew you would say me. So, but obviously, if you want to say Joey Towel and God have. You might say more? You did that one. So my point is that, that yes, there is a certain terminological similarity, and perhaps one might make a superficial mirror image of each other, but the Rambam would not recognize himself in any of the Kabbalistic writings. It's not me, he would say. One second. Let me just one more point. Okay, good. So, any of the areas, emanation, or evil, or language, the Rambam's use of the term is only comparable to the same use of the term that the Kabbalist has, but the content or the meaning of the term is completely different. Again, emanation for the Kabbalist is ontological or physical. It's God's physically being there. For the Rambam, it's only logical and causal. It's nothing more than that. Sorry? Pshat. A pshat reading. It's a literal reading almost. It's what the text implies. Right. Okay, so now, let me just summarize in, in 20 more seconds. Let's take your questions. The Ram, what I've tried to show over here, in the very beginning, that the Kabbalists have certain essential core doctrines, ideas, and thoughts. The Rambam also has some core ideas and thoughts. And in some of these ideas and thoughts, they both share similar or same terminology. Okay, so... Hello? Hello? Hi, can I call you back in 10 minutes? Yeah, we're just finishing right now. Okay, bye. So, the Rambam does use the same terminology and therefore the Kabbalists can adopt the Rambam as one of their own. But we believe it to be a mistaken notion because from any substantive point of view the content of the Rambam which fills these concepts is altogether different than the content of the Kabbalists. Is that so what clear? Okay, questions. Yeah. Okay, so from Emily's Moshe waiting, remember, just She charges me when I'm away from home. Uh, Say again. We yeah. know, and from Moshe until Harabam, we know nothing about this body of study called Kabbalah. We know nothing. What do you mean? Who knows nothing? It's not mentioned. We don't read about it in the Nebiim and the Ketuvim. Uh, we don't read about Kabbalah. Oh, wait, 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 be very careful. Let me just continue. Okay. Because there is Kabbalah, there is there, it's there. Of course it's there. It's there, but what? It's not revealed? No, no, no. It's meant to tell you just 
Yechizkel Perek Alv. Is that Kabbalistic or not Kabbalistic? We're referring to mine as Kabbalah and the study of mystics. If it's only a shared terminology with Harambam and it's not rooted within his work. Oh, that's not for sure. Sanctioned this whole body of study, and why has it reached such problems? Of Kabbalah? Of Kabbalah. Oh, you're asking a very different kind of a question. The Ram certainly did not. The Ram did not sanction it. Let's call, let's use that term. Okay. Was it even? Did it even reach the prominence? Yeah. Absolutely. But it depends on what terms we're using and how we understand these terms. In other words, there's a whole body of literature, let's say in uh, in the classical period of Talmud, called the Hechalot literature, entering into the inner palaces of God. That's sort of mystical. So it does have ancient roots. But then it developed along Gabby's lines, it developed in its own way. And it was undercurrent for a while. And then surfaced afterwards. So if you're asking me, is Kabbalistic thought legitimately Jewish? There are multiple statements in Bereshit Rabbah and Talmudically that one can view as Kabbalistic statements that are from Bereshit Rabbah. So some rabbi at some point said this is a legitimately Jewish idea. And it was within the main frame of traditional oh, study. It wasn't a body of work onto itself. Within traditional... Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so who segmented all of those portions of those studies to create it into its own body of religion? It probably... I wouldn't call it its own body of religion. I'd say it's, it's always been a branch, a, a kind of like, let's call it a stream. Normative Judaism is a river, and Kabbalah is a silently flowing stream, or tributary, that branched off and did develop itself and achieved greater prominence in various... Let's say, for example, during, as a broad statement, during persecutions, when there's massive death all around you, which body of literature provides more emotional comfort and support? Rational or Kabbalistic? Do we all see why that is? And emphasis on the otherworldly, on the spiritual, the soul is eternal, the body dies anyway, right? So it's wonderful to have it. So during periods of persecution, let's say during the Hadrianic persecutions, you're going to have more prominent people thinking, talking about it. Look, it's what, the, what a rabbi will do, let's say, in a class, he might be very rational. But if he has to leave the rational academy and has to go comfort Badminton, somebody loses a child. Your rational thought is irrelevant, it's silly, it's foolish. And you're going to say what you have to say to provide comfort. That's perfectly understandable as a segment of. But today you have rabbis and, and fields of study that are Kabbalistic. Right. In other words, they're no longer on, or they don't claim to be on your level. They're on a Kabbalistic level. I study differently. So when did that body of work become a cohesive or good. inclusive Okay, good. Study? I would probably say around the 13th century with Moshe de Leon, um, but you've always had, remember, Sajik Owen writes a Compton Tiffany which is a quote-unquote Kabbalistic work. So it's within other But it's within. Right. Okay, good. I agree. I'm, I'm just showing you the progress. Good, I agree. You have Sivara Bahir is the first Kabbalist. Sivara Bahir, you know. It was viewed as part of Torah learning. Of religion. I'm a Kabbalist rabbi. I'm going to a different polil. I'm studying Kabbalah. You're getting political? 
I'm in the 13th century right now. So, so now in the, in the 13th century, um, and the Ramban see, would support the point that was always part of Judaism. The Ramban is a classical rabbinic personality, but adds a Kabbalistic dimension. So I would say after the Ramban, probably with the expulsion from Spain, when rationalism and rational philosophy was blamed for the expulsion from Spain for various reasons, whatever it was, so at a certain point then Kabbalah comes into its own. Maybe the last rabbinic work is Akedah Yitzchak, which is a 16th century work, um, and the Babanel, 16th century, with the last quote-unquote rabbinic works, so to speak, and after that you see a greater flourishing of Kabbalistic teachings and writings. I think that might be a fairly accurate, but... Is it sanctioned by the mainstream of rebels? Well, it's interesting because they say Ramchal, who wrote a Kabbalistic work in quotes. Again, we have to be very careful with our terminology over here. Called Da'at Elohim. He's put in Hadam at a certain point. In the 16th, 17th, 16th century? I think it's 17th. 18th. Ramchal? Is that late? I think 17th century. We'll check it. We'll check it. So he's put ahead of as a cap as a, he writes a capitalistic work, right? So um, at certain points it's accepted. It's not accepted. Same strange relationship that you have between the Sufi mystics and the official religious bodies. They had their post scheme and they had their capitalists and their Sufi mystics. Same thing. It's an uneasy, tense kind of relationship that sometimes works well, sometimes doesn't. So it's a hard question to answer. I mean, give a pinpoint date. When Kabbalah becomes its own body of knowledge. It always was, but it was always part of a branch, a stream. And even to this day, you take the great Kabbalists, they're not going to say they're independent of traditional Judaism. They were mainstream rabbis. They were our rabbis. Some of them, right, Kukba. correct. My grandfather was Mikubah. Right. Rabbi Kaduri that we know today. Right, he's mainstream. Kukba. Right. These are people that were mainstream correct. rabbis that practiced Kabbalah Aside from practicing every other aspect of Judaism, right. they didn't give up anything else to come from ours. Right. Campus, right. Yeah. Question. Maybe I understood it wrong, but from what I understood last week, she was telling us that it was like that the Kabbalah was kind of part of Torah Alpet, just a. Yeah, a part of Talmudic literature, but, in so some that sense. Far back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I was learning, it was also these things spoken. Yeah, and then I mean, Kabbalah may be a permanent part of the soul in the sense that a person who's deeply spiritual is trying to go beyond the normative and tries to find meaning in tragedy sometimes. If a child dies, you might find meaning in that. And you might think it's tikkun ha-nefesh, in quotes, something to that effect. So it might be part and parcel of the, of the soul, of the human being even. So I wouldn't limit it to a per, you know, it was hidden, it was open, it was revealed. Then why do you object so much? To I don't object. No, just to, to Rambam being... Oh, because we can't, we can't make that, it's a historical lie. Rambam was not a capitalist, period. Because he, no, because we, we have to... No, but what is, what is it that... Different ideas, different thoughts. Yeah, because I, as like I would understand it, not knowing anything, I would think that the Kabbalah is a, is truth that I don't know. But you would think they're not necessarily truth; they're debatable. It's something that Rambam goes differently of than what the Kabbalah. Yes, I'm not. I, I wouldn't say they're not. I'm not going to say they're non-truths. 
we're on tape, you know. <laughs> so I'm not going to say that. Uh, but I'm, it's a different way of looking at the world. But I'm, yes. but I'm, 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 surely not, I'm surely not a Kabbalist. I'm surely not a Kabbalist. But if one would say to me, I'm a Kabbalist. Okay. I'm happy. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, then you're next. Given what we know about metaphysics and things of that nature, things have been revealed over the centuries, would he have any need for for Kabbalah as he understood it? No. Or would he? No, absolutely not. He wouldn't need it anymore. He never never did need it. He never was part of his world. But I mean, the way he practices, so why would he even? No, Maaseh Bishmas Hamikavais. Physics and metaphysics. He would come to this class and give the class about science and religion and physics and metaphysics. He would, have he would not do their idea of Maaseh Bishmas Hamikavais is good different than what his idea is. But, but the idea of Maaseh Hamikavais and, and Kabbalah, as he as he denoted it, physics and metaphysics. He didn't understand what. In other words, that he couldn't express, which we can express today. <coughs> no, physical things. No, it's the same. Metaphysics is the same today as it was then. The nature of God. Yeah, you would adopt that all, but not the Kabbalists are going to those terms, but he's alien to the Rambam. Right? Daniel. What's the difference between, I don't think you're going like a Stoic and a Kabbalist. Like the modern Stoic would be, they would reach a point, they would, they would not, they'd give up the body just like a Kabbalist would, because it's that different. And then they would reach a point, like if they would get close to, they didn't have a God, but like, Right, a higher being, and then they'd go and say, well, wouldn't be a higher being. Not a higher being, but a higher energy being. And they, so, was. so what, where's, the, where's the difference? In a lot of ways. In their ideas, in um, how they view the world, the means to get to that higher... No, they, they believe that they would have to eliminate desires. The, the physical body. The physical body, the, the Kabbalists didn't believe that. Yeah, to some degree. Again, you know, Kabbalist, Kabbalah is a, is a, is a large field. And there are many Kabbalists and there are many different ideas, many different thoughts about it. So I don't want to oversimplify too much. But it, there might there are certain commonalities and certain distinctions. The commonalities there are commonalities between the Stoics of Thane and the Kabbalists, but there are also very important distinctions one wants to point to. But not for now. <laughs> yeah, next. Alan. No, more because they felt that he they, that he felt that he was a Kabbalist. It was it was not obvious to them. Not obvious to the Ramban, not obvious to not obvious to Abulafi, not obvious to hundreds of years ago. Could take from you know that were on their track. So why was he need Ramban? A was a need, but they just see they just see a common ally with him. What interesting, what I didn't mention over here is that the first, um, or what you say, say an early view of this is, is a commentary on the Ramban, on the Rambam called Megdal Oz. Shem Tov, somebody Shem Tov, Megdal Oz. Megdal Oz in Mishneh Torah does in fact show us how this legend of the Rambam's conversion to Kabbalah took place. In other words, Bedal Oz is a Kabbalistic commentary. He's right after Amishneh Torah. And especially in the first chapters of Hoshea Torah, where he talks about emanations, we see for the first time, on the page of the Rambam's Hoshea Torah, we see a Kabbalistic writer saying, see, he's a Kabbalist. Yeah. Yeah. His conclusion from this, and but we can see why he did that, because he saw sefirot, spheres, 
which what Rambam did not mean what he meant by spheres, but we see how the legend begins and develops ongoingly. And part of it is the Rambam's prestige, you're right. Part of it is the Rambam's, who the Rambam was, all that, yeah. If someone says today, you know, someone says, you know, like the, the celebrity studies come alive. Never happens. It becomes... You know, she, so it's the same idea. Exactly. To some degree that's, that's true. But there's a more profound connection in that they saw the Ramam as one of us. Yeah. I just wanted you to clarify something important. The difference, again, the way you started in the beginning, the difference between curiosity about Kabbalah, the study of Kabbalah, and the actual practice. Today, the amount of people yeah. that actually practice are very minute. Sure, few of that's between. the point. The practical Kabbalist. Well, we see Madonna. That's not a practical. That's not a practical. That's a person that's doing Kabbalah. I don't like Philip Berg either. No, no, I'm not saying I like him. I'm just saying, what would you call that? That's not Kabbalah. I call that uh, mass marketing, making money. Yeah, I'm very angry at Philip Berg. I don't, I don't like Philip Berg at all. Don't ask. Don't ask. No, I, I won't put them in the same category. No, I, I think that there's a very minute. Right, the practical. Yes, that's true. The theoretical Kabbalists, the practical Kabbalists, those who study Kabbalah in, in a. There's a lot of studying, but they are not practicing. Very few Mikubalim. Exactly. Thank you all for coming. Hope I clarified. While I appreciate it. Good. Yes, hi, how are we doing?